So today we are on um, 131. We're still in the first book here. And, no, excuse me, we're on 132. We finished 131 last week. And it says, The practice of one-pointed concentration is the best way to rise above both the obstacles and the physical and mental disturbances that accompany them. And then he talks about one-pointed concentration at the spiritual center between the eyebrows, the seat of superconsciousness, causes delusion and imperfections to vanish before the dawn of absolute awareness. And he talks about the ego consciousness being centered at the medulla, and the whole effort of the spiritual path is to move our attention to the Christ center. And then he talks about the Christ center and so on. He says, all delusions begin with and are centered in ego consciousness. And then he talks about how the thought of I and identification with our own behavior forms a vortex of energy which creates a vritti, and so on. I want to talk just a couple of minutes before I do that. I want to ask if you all have any questions about anything that might have been lingering over the time since we met together. But our usual question answer Asker is not here, so we might not have any questions. Anyone else have any thoughts before we go on? Um, what Swamiji is talking about here, what Patanjali and Swamiji are both talking about here, is, is it's one of those really interesting and amazing aspects of the spiritual path that is easy to read, but is really hard to understand until you live through it. Um, there's a tremendous advantage to age on the spiritual path because of the fact simply that you have enough repeated experiences um, that the, the point begins to make itself clear to you. And what Swamiji is talking about here is saying that if you can just shift your point of attention, your self-definition, your point of concentration, from the medulla center where the ego is to the spiritual eye, all delusions and imperfections vanish. And it's, it's sort of so hard. Um, it's sort of like that when the uh, master said to one of the disciples, if you, just, you know, if you just say that you're free, then you will be free. And then the disciple said back, but sir, if I said I was free, I wouldn't be free, would I? <laughs> and it's, it's sort of like, Master makes a very simple statement, but then it's just so hard for us to um, get ourselves around that idea that even in trying to get ourselves around that idea, we reduce it back down to something that we're comfortable with. Um, what I was saying about the advantage of age is that knowing um, I've heard the same truths for so long, just over and over and over again, and then at a certain point, everything gets simple. In, in the beginning of my first 25 years or 30 years on the spiritual path, everything always seemed so complicated to me because it all had to run through the filter of this very uh, complicated attachment to complication. <laughs> That's the only way I can think of to say it. Swamiji uh, remarked once, it happened to be in the satsang he was giving in India, but it didn't really matter where it was. He just said the, a, a statement that is uh, a cliché. God is simple, everything else is complex. 
And, you know, we've all heard that a lot of different times. But then Swami went on the next day. He said to me later, I was staying in the house then, he said, uh, I don't think people quite appreciated the importance of what I was saying. And I think I actually started to say this on Sunday, but never went, never went back to it. Um, there's this e- extraordinary diversity of creation. And we, because the creation seems so complicated, I mean, think how complicated it is. I just came back from India. I flew through Dubai, all of these different cultures, all of these different people. You get close, you know, to any of the um, uh, Arab nations, and all of a sudden... The, the the dress changes, the demeanor changes, the the whole way of relating changes. All the women, a lot of women are walking around in the burqas and just this whole thing starts coming in, which is a whole other reality. You go to India, it's another reality. You get to America, you're back in this one. And, and all of those permutations are just so enormous. You, you just can't even begin to comprehend them. You can't help but think, that the source of all this complexity must be the biggest complexity of all. How else could it not be? But what Swamiji explains is that this complexity is created by vibratory movement. That the energy is moving, and it's the moving that creates the complexity because everything is vibrating at different rates. It's a very interesting thing to think about life in terms of rate of vibration, rhythm of vibration. Today I was talking to some friends and, you know, everybody moves in this world in different rhythms. Swamiji mentioned that once. Swamiji once said that he thinks a great deal of miscommunication is because rhythms don't match. And that people talk in one rhythm and then people listen in another rhythm and as a consequence the words go through but the vibrations don't go through. They just don't match. And one of the things that Uh, when I really understood that from him, one of the things I began to practice when I really wanted to either to be understood or to understand was as much as possible try to feel the rhythm of the person I'm trying to communicate to and try to match their vibration. Sometimes I've gone so far as to imitate their posture or even practice when I'm alone the sound of their voice. Like what kind of an inner vibration would create that sound of voice? What would create that accent? What would create that particular intonation? What would create that tendency to end every sentence with a, on a kind of up note or on a down note or to swallow the last words or to rush the beginning words? All of these things are rhythms and all of those rhythms come out of vibrations. And just from the point of view of cultures, uh, when Swamiji would be here sometimes and sometimes when he'd give satsang, he would greet people afterwards and often we'd have a, large and diverse crowd. And because Swamiji speaks a number of languages, oftentimes he would change languages when he was greeting people. And there was a certain style that he would greet the Americans. But whenever anyone would come up and start addressing him in Italian, it was always obvious to me that the whole rhythm of the conversation would shift. And it wasn't just that the language would shift. Almost immediately, he would laugh and they would laugh, even though I could tell no joke had been told. (laughs) But it was all this sort of um, exchange of heart energy. And the words were, the Americans would say, I'm so glad you came, Swamiji. Thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed your talk. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Swami would say. It's a pleasure to meet you. The Italians would come up and they would sort of say, ah, ha, ha, ha. And Swami would answer, ha, ha, ha. There would just be none of that sort of 
pomp and circumstance. This, it would just be this sort of lilting energy. I sort of said to Swamiji, that's how I perceive it. I said, I don't think you're saying anything. No, nothing in particular. Just, but the whole rhythm, because the whole rhythm of that culture is just a very different rhythm. Now, what I was saying about the complexity is that what Swamiji was saying is that all these different vibrations are what create all these different appearances. It's the same force, whether you call it light or the Om vibration or Satchitananda itself. Swamiji, I think it's in this book or it's in the Gita. This is all too close to me and it's driving me a little crazy. Um, in the Gita commentary, Swamiji is trying to explain how vibrations give the appearance of matter. And he uses the example of a rotating fan that, or the propeller of an airplane. When the propeller of the airplane is spinning, you look at it, it appears to be a solid circle. And only when the vibration slows down enough do you realize that it's three, maybe just three blades. But when they move really fast, it gives the appearance of something solid. And it, it's so odd to contemplate that, that this is just vibrations. You know, that we, what we consider to be immovable, is just energy in motion. But energy in motion at such a rapid rate that that motion gives us the impression that this is a solid form. But it's no more solid than a spinning propeller. It's just the impression that's created. But what happens with the spinning propeller, for example, is as it begins to slow down, you begin to perceive what its true nature is, don't you? You had a certain impression about what it was while it was moving, but when it becomes still, you see it for something else. And of course, when the propeller becomes completely still, you have three blades. You don't have a circle. You don't have that mass of energy. You just have three blades just sitting there. So what Swamiji is talking about, the simplicity of spirit, is that the closer you get to the center of yourself, to the center of reality, you see all the vibrations slow down. Far from speeding up and becoming more and more complicated, the the point from which it all emanates, everything is emanating from here, but the closer you get to that center point, the more you see everything narrows down. And when we're talking about uh, coming into the awareness of the spirit, what you have to come into is a state of complete stillness where all those vibrations stop. And when all those vibrations stop, you see all the complexity immediately disappears. And you really have nothing there but stillness. I have thought naturally a great deal and have spoken often about that moment of transition when Swamiji left his body. And I wasn't there, but I've heard the story told by well, by everyone who was there almost by now, and repeatedly by several people who were were there, either when he breathed his last or immediately after. And we don't think about, as a rule, the fact that our heart is beating and that we're breathing in and out. We don't necessarily hear it, even though it's going on all the time. Yes, when you sit very quietly to meditate and when you get closer and closer to stillness, you become conscious of that, continuous involuntary movement. When Swamiji had a pacemaker put in, it, uh, it distressed him because you see now his heart can only slow down to a certain point before the pacemaker made it beat again. You know, so, so it was a, a conflict with the practice of yoga, but nonetheless there it was. 
But we don't think about ourselves as breathing. We don't think about our hearts beating. We certainly don't think about that as a general rule, as being an agitating influence. The only time we think of it as an agitating influence is if we're in meditation moving into breathlessness or if we're capable of stopping our hearts. You know, Master could stop his heart. Master could have a different pulse in each wrist. He would call the doctors on stage. They would take his pulse simultaneously. It was different in each arm. Can you imagine? I mean, well, we can't imagine, but only that. I mean, he, he just played with the material world. It was like a toy to him because of the vibrations he could deal with. But in, when you're approaching that state in meditation, then you become conscious of how slow your breath is. And I mean, if it stops, it's not something I've experienced. I don't want to mislead you, but you certainly feel it calming down and you you're become aware of it in a different way. Well, what Swami did, of course, when he passed away, passed out of his body. He didn't pass away. Where did he go? One of my friends, after her husband died, people sometimes people would say to you, I'm so sorry you lost your husband. She said, he wasn't the credit card I left at Macy's or something like that. She said, I didn't lose him. I know precisely where he is. He's just not here. <laughs> it was just a, a comment she didn't appreciate. I always laughed when she would say that it's not lost. But in any case, when Swamiji exited from his body, his consciousness went, as it was described, as people experienced it there, his consciousness went into absolute stillness. And his consciousness went so still that he stopped breathing and his heart stopped beating. But, but what people described was twofold. Um, you know, enormous joy and absolute stillness simultaneously. Because even the intrusion of breath and heartbeat had stopped. Now what could be more simple? And also, isn't that like such an interesting way to think about death? That's the part of it that I also liked. It wasn't really that he went anywhere. Of course, in his state of spiritual freedom, he went everywhere. The, um, the average person would simply take their astral body out of their physical body, but they would still be circumscribed by the astral body. So they, they would just go with that astral body into the astral world, but there would still be a circumscribed identity that, that they would walk away with. I believe when Swami passed away, based on what Master said about him and what, what, insofar as I'm capable of discerning what I felt to be his consciousness, he didn't go to the astral world. You know, to say we had an astral ascension for him was not true. He went into the infinite, which is to say he, everything stopped. He, didn't take his, he wasn't identified with his astral body, freed, freed from his physical. He went off with his astral. He just stopped breathing and stopped having his heartbeat. Now, think how, how magnificent that is for everyone who dies. To just say, well, it's going to happen. Is you'll just stop breathing and your heart will stop beating. I mean, we think of that as such a big thing, but it isn't. It's just that you actually, finally, become physically still, completely. And depending on how consciously you enter that state, you know, it depends on, on how easily you just move into that and move on. I was very touched by what was said to me that a Buddhist monk, I don't even know who it was, was asked the question about, 
reincarnation in the astral world. And his answer was so, I love his answer, as reported to me. He said, from, from this, from your perspective, he said to the questioner, you think of these as a lot of separate events. He said, when in fact it is one continuous flow of energy. That you, we live in this body, we, you know, the sperm and the ovum come together, and so we start a physical pulse in that particular physical form. And then we build that physical body. The heartbeat comes, the parents get so excited, the body comes out of the uterus, and then it does its thing, and the whole time it, it breathes and its heart beats. And then it's done, and it stops breathing, breathing and the heart beats. And then the force that caused that goes on. It goes wherever vibratorily it belongs, into the astral world, into the infinite, if we are so fortunate. But it's all of it is just vibration, and it all comes back to this simplicity. Now, in this particular sutra, he's talking about ego identification being the medulla. This is, this, is, this is the same chakra. This is so interesting to think about, because this is our unique individual consciousness. This is the jiva, the word that we've talked about at many different times, which is a better word than soul. It's our unique individual consciousness, the jiva. So the jiva either identifies itself with this beating heart and breathing reality, which is our physical body and everything else that goes out with it. And if so, then the energy is centered at this pole of this particular chakra, which is why we we are more in our eyes than we are in our knees It's not merely that the sense of sight is so powerful, which of course it is. It's because we look at the world from the medulla. And and, and it's just really true. You know, we sort of move around like this, don't we? This is sort of how we're moving around. And when our consciousness is centered at the medulla, then everything that happens, as Master put it so charmingly, seems to concern us personally. I love that. He said, don't think, you know, not everything that happens to you concerns you personally. That's one of those marvelously, like, what on earth does that mean sort of sentences. The first time I heard that, I, I didn't have any idea where to go with that. Of course it does. It happened to me. It just seems so self-evident. But when we're making this heartbeat and these lungs breathe, we believe that that circumscribes and defines the pronoun I. The entire misunderstanding of the New Testament is the pronoun I. When Jesus says I, what is he talking about? I mean, the people who lived with him and the people who've come after, for the most part, looked at the fact that he did live in a physical body, and therefore when he said I, they absolutely assumed he meant the physical body he was living in, because that's what everyone else thinks. Um, I was, there's a story about Corrie Ten Boom, who was the Christian woman in Amsterdam during the Second World War, who with her family hid Jews from the Nazis. And they had a, the, the book was The Hiding Place. Some of you may have seen the movie. And it was, it was named after this, this sort of false room they had on the other side of a wall where the, where the Jews in the house could run if the Gestapo came and raided the house. And the Gestapo often raided in the middle of the night because they would wake people from sleep and then people would be very confused. So when Corey was 
was being trained by her young nephew, who was, they were all part of the Dutch underground, in order to be prepared for the assault of the Nazis in the middle of the night, the nephew would burst into her room in the middle of the night, start shine a light into her face and start screaming at her, where are the Jews, where are the Jews? And Corey said she unfortunately slept very soundly, very deeply and was very, very trapped in her subconscious mind. Invariably, when she woke out of a dead sleep and he said, where are the Jews? She would say, in the room behind the wall. <laughs> you know, And just like it was so difficult for her to um, identify quickly with the, rea- the reality she was supposed to identify with. And I often think about that just with us. We're always just sort of going along in life. Things happen, sometimes that startle us a little bit, and we, where do we go? Where does our consciousness go immediately in that moment? If, if somebody yells at us, is our, does our energy run to the medulla and we begin to defend ourselves? If we feel like our physical body is threatened, does our energy run to the medulla and we clen, uh, tense up like that? I had an interesting experience on the flight from San Francisco to Dubai, which was an entire cup of hot tea poured onto my lap at the beginning of a 17-hour flight. Right. Many, many years ago, and I have to write to Krishnadas about this, on one of our very first India pilgrimages, Krishnadas, who lives now at Ananda village, is a very uh, careful person about things. He's, he's just very careful. He had everything completely worked out about how this trip was going to work. He had everything he needed. It was all in order. He was sitting next to me on the airplane, and we had just started the flight. They served us drinks. I had orange juice. And this is one of those things where I didn't actually decide to do it. And so it wasn't deliberate, but it happened. I took the orange juice and I poured it on his leg and foot. (laughs) Just completely. I filled his sandals with orange juice. And you know, he's a very careful person and he does not fill his sandals with orange juice. And so here we are starting on this month-long journey in which everything is exactly worked out and we begin with his sandals being filled with orange juice at the beginning of this very long flight. Well, the karma finally came home. This is like 30 years later, but the karma came home in spades. She serves me a cup of tea. She put it on this little plastic thing. I had the little table folded back, which you can put a cup there, but she set this thing on it, and I just watched it. I just watched it somehow, but I couldn't watch it fast enough to stop it. She set it down. There had milk in it. It just comes right like that, and then it just pours itself out completely on me. And as it's coming, and I'm beginning to feel it, the thought, you know, I feel the heat. And I'm thinking, hmm, you know, how hot is this going to be? I think about that. Wasn't there a woman who sued McDonald's for the coffee spilling on her? It crossed my mind. Wow, how hot can this tea be? And it was hot enough to cause me to remember that I am in a physical body, but fortunately not hot enough to really be a problem. But still, it's like, here it comes. It's It's just so fast like that, like, Who are we? Who am I? When I'm woken up in the middle of the night, when something utterly unexpected happens in my reality, where does my consciousness go? You know, do I do I immediately flee to the spiritual eye, or do I flee to the medulla and cling like that? I was I I would say I got about a sixty-five percent on that test out of a hundred. You know, I was I did much better. I didn't I didn't make any noise. I didn't yell. I didn't panic. I just watched it come. 
No, I just watched it come and wondered how much it was going to burn me. You know, then, the, I mean, actually, the stewardesses were panicking plenty for me. I didn't have to bother. They were totally panicked all around me. It was also fun because I had to go, you know, wash my clothes out a bit because it was all this milk. It was the beginning of a 17-hour flight, and I'm wearing soaking wet clothes. It's like, wow, now, you know, now what happens? And it was all, I mean, it was minor as tests in life go. But nonetheless, you know, just like, where does our consciousness go? Now, what Swamiji tells us, what Patanjali tells us, one-pointed concentration at the spiritual eye causes delusion and imperfections to vanish. So we're all working so hard. Oh, I have this attitude. I have this complex. I have this problem. Because this happened to me, I tend to think this way, and I always respond like this because of that. And, you know, we have these very complicated systems. And believe me, they're not useless. If you don't have any idea who you are or why you respond, you have to put out enough energy to get to know yourself. Um, a married couple, a couple that I knew who married for a very brief period of time, they were really astonishingly unconscious about what I will say is about as to the source of their suffering. And because both of them generated a great deal of misery for themselves, when they were together and that misery would be generated, they naturally assumed that the other was causing it. Because there was a certain sequential relationship. So-and-so does or says this, I feel badly, therefore you must have caused it. Well, now that you've done this, I feel badly, so therefore you caused it. And so their marriage was exceedingly short-lived. But, but it was, had nothing to do with their being together and everything to do with not knowing where their suffering was actually coming from. So I'm not saying that it's useless to find out. But there is a certain point on the spiritual path where you just don't care anymore. I, I swear, I, in my own mind, I put it like this. All karma becomes generic. There's just one kind of karma. The karma, anything that causes me to lose touch with my inner joy. And it really doesn't matter if it's because you're being tortured in a concentration camp or because somebody's spoken kindly to you because you lost all your money, because you broke your leg. It really doesn't make any difference what it is. It's all the same thing. I need to stay in my inner joy or I get pulled out of it. And we spend a lot of time sorting out all the details, but there comes a point where we realize if I can shift my definition of self from my ego-based reality to my divine reality, all this delusion and suffering vanishes. I mean, that's an interesting point. He doesn't even say it diminishes or becomes more manageable or the causes become more obvious or I become more balanced in my responses or anything. He says it vanishes because it doesn't really exist unless you think that everything that happens to you concerns you personally. And it's only the jiva's identification with the ego that causes that thought to come up. Which is why when you read uh, Swami's book, Sadhu Beware, for example, which is a really marvelous book, he gives rules like, don't ever explain yourself. If they want to blame you, let them. 
Don't ever justify yourself. You know, if they want to blame you, let them. Don't feel you have to explain who you are. Now, these are instructions that have to be balanced. I have to say that just a little bit because sometimes people um, use them to their detriment. They apply a spiritual principle when, in fact, they have psychological reasons for applying that spiritual principle which are not healthy. But let's assume that there's a solid ego functioning. Once the ego is functioning solidly, our only interest is in transcending it. And all of the spiritual path, all of the austerities, all the self-sacrifice, all the seva, all the generosity, all of the sadhana, everything is for one purpose, to move our sense of identity from the ego to the spiritual eye. When we sit and chant for an hour and a half together, when we have a long meditation, when we have a beautiful ceremony in here, when we do the purification ceremony, when we take the touch of light during the festival of light, what is all that about? All of that is to say, I am one with the spirit. I am surrendered to God. I am part of this infinite power. I move around in this body, but I'm just keeping the heart beating and the lungs pumping. That's all I'm really doing in here. And when the time comes, I'll just let it go. Just just like that. Just with the lightest breath. Now, is this simple? No. But, let me phrase it differently. Is this easy? No. Is this simple? Yes. And so we need to train ourselves on the spiritual path as early as possible to recognize that God is very simple. Just like Swamiji said. He appears to be very complicated, and the whole spiritual path appears to be complicated. But it isn't really. Move our attention from the medulla to the spiritual eye. It's really a very short distance when you think about it. (laughs) You know, but it's everything. When we put the spiritual eye up there, the idea before this was all redecorated, um, the idea of having the spiritual eye so large had not been done in any of the other temples. The spiritual eye was generally smaller. But of course, because of the scale of this temple. And also, it just seemed like a good idea to have the spiritual eye be really big. But it was hard to communicate to people sort of what that was going to be like. So I realizing that words don't make pictures for a lot of people. This is something I thank Pavani, who's a dancer who really understands this. When we were, I'm going to just digress a little, when we were doing the little play Uh, the singer and the nightingale. We put that on a few years ago and took it up to Swamiji and performed it for him and for Ananda Village. I was directing that. And at one point I said to people, walk to that line, then turn right. And then a minute later, people walked halfway to the line and went left. People went all the way across the line and kept going straight. People went to the line, made a twirl and went backwards. And I just, I came apart at that point. I was a very hot day. You know, aren't you people listening? What don't you understand about walk to the line and turn left? Pavani, bless her heart, said everything. That's what we don't understand about it. She said, you know, words don't paint pictures. They're just sounds. You know, for me, words make pictures. But she said for, for herself, words don't make pictures. And then she showed me. She took me by the shoulders. She walked me to the line. She turned my body right and pushed me that direction. She said, now I'll understand. <laughs> It was just like, oh, yeah, that's right. We all have, you know, different responses to these different realities. Um, 
now, because I went in such a long way, I forgot where I was going originally. Oh, yes, about the spiritual eye here. So I finally realized that no matter how often I described it, nobody got it. So I came here one day, and I took a big piece of cardboard, and I made a big cardboard circle, and I got Christmas wrap, and I, I made it out of tinfoil, cardboard and tinfoil, and it was five feet across. And we just stuck it up there. You know, and it was up there for nine months or maybe even a year. It was just this big tinfoil. It was gorgeous. It was really, really gorgeous. And all of a sudden, people are really looking at it. But no one was still quite certain. So Swami came to visit at one point. And I, so I, we brought him in here and, you know, showed it to him. This is a mock-up. What do you think, Swamiji? Oh, yes, he said. First of all, he said, as long as it's so that you have to raise your eyes to see it. And then he said, it should be big enough so you feel you can walk into it. I just, I just love that. We made it as big as we could given the placement of the arches and so on. So this is actually only four feet instead of five. But I've always thought about that. It should look big enough that you feel you can just walk into it. And, and, and we also wanted it, the idea philosophically was that the masters emanate from the spiritual eye. And so that instead of having the arch, you know, if the masters point to the spiritual eye as, you know, as if it's smaller than they are, that the spiritual eye should be bigger than the masters because that's where they come from. It didn't quite work, but it's still, it's, it's better, you know, in this method, and our architecture supports it perfectly. Just trying, even by the visual display, to have that thought in our mind. There are the masters, but look above the masters. This is where it all comes from. And that their reality, the definition of their reality, is the spiritual eye. And that the bodies that they manifested are not the definition of their reality. What the definition of their reality is, is this complete transcendence. And even just walking around in their bodies, they just live in them so differently. This is the pronoun I in the Bible. When Jesus said I, he meant the consciousness that he had and manifested through that body. He was the Christ consciousness. He was the star at the center, that Swami refers to that here, the whole um, legend or tradition of the wise men in the east seeing that star, uh, wise men from the east seeing that star in the east, which you know has esoteric meaning, which means going before you in the forehead. They followed the star. They followed the intuition. And it was his star because Jesus descended from that infinite consciousness, which is what the star represents those who have experienced it, this is how they, they tell you what it is. So they come from there. And that's how we go back to them. You may remember if you were listening to the, the first memorial services for Swamiji in uh, Assisi. Um, we were there. It was, as you can well imagine, it was a very intense time. It was, it was a time of very intense feelings. That's the word I would use. And we were sitting in that temple, and, and, and there was the casket there. It was an open casket, so you were looking at Swami's absolutely still body. It was beautiful. He just looked beautiful with his hands folded and in his blue robe, and he was buried in rose petals. It was, it was quite something. And he was there the whole time we were there, just the whole uh, out there. But this was the first day we were all gathered in the temple, and they started playing a recording of his voice 
and their sound system was perfect, and this and the sound of the recording was perfect, and it was he was just speaking, and of course, his presence was exceedingly intense. He was intensely present. He was not lost. He was intensely present. I'm hearing his voice, so I I find you know just sort of I realize that I'm staring at the speaker, you know, and it's just a little speaker like this, and I'm just. I'm concentrating on that speaker because that's where the sound was coming from. But I was concentrating on it with an absurd focus because I was, I was trying to find Swamiji there. So I realized that he's not in the loudspeaker. So there was his body. So I, I tried to concentrate on his body. But of course, he was dead. His body was not the source of his consciousness either. And I was just kind of you know, just all this is happening like we were all in a slightly altered state. So it wasn't happening in exactly a rational process. I would almost say I was watching myself doing it, but I don't want to exaggerate. But there were, we were happening on many levels. Sort of watching myself look for him. And I looked at, then I looked at the pictures on the altar and I tried to sort of find him in there. And I actually, only, only when I lifted my eyes to the spiritual eye that was above the altar. Sort of when I finally was doing that, then it was like, this is a source. This is is the source of of where he's coming from at this point. It was was a very, um, very real experience. And I mean, I've always felt that way about him, but it was so dramatic when he was out of his body and again, it was one of those moments where, well, this is a very important teaching that I'm understanding here. It's not only a description of his consciousness and how to find him. It's, it's a definition of how to find ourselves, how to find that stillness, how to really be who, we're, who we are and who we're trying to be because everything else vanishes. It's just like there's just a few words here. Um, he, uh, Patanjali says rise above Swami uses the word vanish that everything just comes into order that's why they say and truly don't worry about anything just meditate and, and there's truth in that if you, if you really do meditate it doesn't mean if you just go through the motions but if you really do transfer your sense of identity from ego to infinite everything else just goes away and that's why when Swamiji was even, um, you know, attacked in the law courts and all of that, and it was a very personal attack, and he just said, I, I won't defend myself. He defended, he, he, he accepted the fact that he had to go along with the legal process because all of our lives would also be jeopardized if he didn't, because if Ananda were obliterated, then all the people who had been relying on a non-discontinuing existence, would also have their life expunged. So for the sake of everyone else, he said if he'd been entirely alone, he simply would have refused to participate no matter what the consequences. But he was, he was just a terrible witness. (laughs) Just absolutely terrible. And he was really terrible in court in front of the jury. And he was interpreted as being... um, callous or indifferent 
because nobody knew how to interpret the energy that he was putting out. And the energy he was putting out was, just because this is happening to me, it doesn't mean it has anything to do with me. And there was no, you know, anybody in such a situation attaches to their own reality and some part of them holds on to that reality and tries to protect it. Even if you're ask, answering honestly, you know, just vibrationally, that's where you are. You're concerned about the outcome. And Swami was so um, not identified with the whole experience that nobody outside of our family knew how to read it. You know, it was very, it was very interesting, and they just didn't know what to do with it. And in that context, we even our lawyer had just didn't know what to do with it. He just couldn't. He literally could not imagine because it was so outside of his own realm of consciousness, that particular lawyer at that particular time. He, he just couldn't relate to it. And as a consequence, we didn't fare so well in that particular lawsuit because the jury drew obvious conclusions, or, you know, just conclusions that he was an unfeeling, uncaring, all kinds of things that they wanted to think because he didn't feel and he didn't care in that particular way which is about self, completely impersonal about self. We talk, we use this word impersonal. For years, Swamiji would talk about impersonal love, and he would even talk about, about marriage, about being more impersonal in your relationship with each other. I, in my unbelievable callow youth, is the only way I can think about it, I used to protest to him that it just didn't, didn't play very well when he talked to, to married couples or at marriages about being impersonal. I just sort of protested that it wasn't useful. He listened to me very respectfully and then went on talking in exactly the same way, <laughs> just totally ignored me. Of course, the older I've gotten and the more I've understood, I understood that he was exactly right. Was, I couldn't possibly grasp it at that time, but I understood later that he was exactly right, that all of this excessive preoccupation with self and other just holds your energy at the medulla and you really want to be at the spiritual eye. But what he, he needed to explain, which he did explain, what people needed to grasp, is you're not impersonal about other people and their feelings. You're impersonal about yourself. Impersonal in that you deal objectively with yourself. You neither consider yourself more important nor less important. You're just very impersonal about it. You, you, you do what's appropriate, um, but not, but not um, with this great sense of self-importance in it. You're moving your attention from the medulla to the spiritual eye. Swamiji early on said, I never identify with Swami Kriyananda. I consider Swami Kriyananda to be an event for which I am responsible I love that. Because if you are responsible for an event, you have to be conscientious about it. You can't just be indifferent and do it badly. But to be responsible for an event is entirely different than identifying and defining yourself by that event. And therefore, Swamiji remarked once (coughs) that so-and-so who had a a less, less exuberant demeanor, he said, appeared to be more detached than Swamiji was. But in fact, he had... Uh, he didn't explain it, but Swami had such inner freedom that he didn't even have to hold back. He described Master that same way. He said other s- souls who were 
just aspiring or just coming to um, the level of consciousness that Master was born with had to discipline their energy in order to maintain it. But Master was so completely at home in that state of uh, samadhi consciousness that he, d- he, just, he didn't have to protect it at all. He could be completely free in his relations with people, in his, his uh, way of life, in his um, self-expression. There was nothing to protect. And I, I felt that about Swamiji. He was just so free. You know, he could just do... He could live in such an easy manner because there was nothing to protect anymore. Most of us have to be more careful. Most of us have to think, you know, how to focus our energy, how to discipline our energy, how to break this attachment. And it's appropriate that we should. And that is the single most efficient way to bring about everything else that we desire. Because all uh, delusions and imperfections will vanish if we can just make that shift. Okay. Thoughts, comments, questions? Well, if not, we'll take a little break. Oh, Marilyn, did you have something? Do you need to speak into the microphone? Hold there. it up here. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes when um, when I'm um, like like upset or something, I'll say happy, sad, happy, sad, and after a while, I, it's almost like a pendulum, and I'll, and and I get centered, <laughs> and and I can do it like red, green, red, green. So I can any anything that seems opposite, I sometimes just say that. You can and, just say the opposite. Yeah, Interesting. and and it um it it centers me. Mm-hmm. Well, because it reminds you that you're just swinging on the on the pendulum and that's and that there's no reality to one side or the other yeah there isn't yeah yeah there isn't uh-huh and that's true because the truth of all of us is stillness and anything all karma is generic <laughs> just yeah. pushes us off of center and, and we lose interest in it we're not so we don't think just because it happened to me doesn't mean it concerns me <laughs> the only thing that concerns me is whether i stay centered in the midst of this or not and, and when you're centered, then that's when you um, are feeling, well, I can feel happy. I don't say I feel bliss, but that's, that's where... Well, you feel calm is calm. actually the word, because calm. you don't always feel happy. But Many calm. things that happen are very sad. You know, somebody you care about deeply, something tragic happens to them, and you realize, you know, that it's going to be sad for them and a lot of people. But you can still be centered. Yeah. Um, to be centered is what we're seeking why people even-minded and cheerful we do stay cheerful but the word is even-minded we're just even about it we're calm but but as i often draw when i talk about emotions the point is you need to be in the in the trunk of the tree but even the trunk of the tree extends all the way out to its smallest branches so it's not like you cease to have these experiences but it's different when you have them from here and you know that you're reaching out to them than when you have moved your whole definition of self into that little leaf. And that's what happens. Oh, I'm terribly sad and upset and angry about this, or I'm so happy about this now. In a real sense, both are wrong to the same degree. But when you stand in the center and say, oh, isn't this lovely? This is what Swamiji was. He was so natural. 
He didn't say, well, you know, that's just delusion. Well, that's just delusion. If something was beautiful and wonderful, he didn't hesitate to extend himself out and celebrate it. And if something was very painful, he didn't hesitate to extend himself out and, and, and accept it and experience it and not shy away from it. You know, if it, was, if it was a difficulty or a tragedy or a suffering that someone was going through, he would just go all the way into that reality. But he never disconnected from his center in either direction. There was, he was always calmly centered no matter what was going on around him. And that's where the strength comes from, you see. People think, well, I can't be happy and I can't be sad. No, no, I'm always centered, no matter what's going on. Miss Swami, he would read P.G. Woodhouse and he would laugh and laugh. And when funny or silly things would happen, he would just enter into it completely. He could, I mean, one of the, he hurt himself toward the end of his life because he was, he was pretending to be a model walking down a runway and he just didn't have the, his body wasn't uh, coordinated enough and he fell over and hurt himself. And he just said after it, as he put it, it was his own silly fault. But you know, he was just, he was easy. There was nothing uh, over serious. He was just easy. But he never lost his center. He never moved off of it. You could see that at all times. Does that make sense? Because it's a, it's a subtle but vitally important difference. Yeah. yeah, it's all right. Yeah. You work on you it. You just have to keep visualizing master. Yeah, just keep visualizing master and just stay there, here yeah. at the spiritual eye. Yes, Arthur, Prashad. Uh-huh. Um, there's that statement that uh, don't worry about anything, just meditate. Um, uh-huh. It's an extreme statement. It's an extreme statement. How far can you take that while still remaining practical? Well... You can take it as far as you can as long as it's still practical. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't abrogate common sense and it doesn't substitute for common sense. You simply have to use your common sense. You know, common sense is a very fundamental issue on the spiritual path. In fact, Teresa of Avila, who set up these cloistered convents of a dozen nuns, she said to the mother superiors, great care must be exercised in choosing those nuns She said, above all, look for common sense. She said, everything else, including devotion to God, can be acquired. She said, but common sense is the first grounding point of the spiritual path. And so it's an odd word, but it's a very real word. You, You can't apply philosophy beyond your capacity to actually grasp and understand it. And Swami, a master told, I think, this really awful story about these two young boys who, apparently a true story, went out into the forest with a machete and they said, if God doesn't want you to die, he will save you. And then the one boy went like that and chopped off the head of the other. Master's response was, why should God save them from such stupidity? It's like there's no common sense in that and it's presumptuous, presumptive, presumptuous, yes, to imagine that God will rescue you if you're going to be a moron. It's, it's, it, there's no common sense in that. So to imagine that you can just take a philosophical idea and paste it onto your life when common sense shows you you're not really living at that level, um, no, then it won't work. So it's directional. It's, it's directional, but if you have no idea who you are, where your pain comes from, what you really think, 
you have no mastery over your own energy, you can't just sort of take all of that and put it on the shelf and say, I'll just meditate, because among other things, you won't be able to meditate that deeply, because all of those roiling realities will be interfering, and that karma will pull you back into interaction with people, into facing all those issues. So a lot of it depends on, are you sitting to meditate, or are you really meditating? But there's really... Common sense can't be defined. It just is. So that's what I would say. The principle has to be applied with common sense. And if you, don't, if you know that you don't have common sense, then you need to cultivate friends who do. And you need to listen to them. Am I being too extreme? Does this make any sense? No, no, I mean, I was saying, I was, I was, I was mimicking that. You have to ask if you know that you don't have it. And it's a very good thing to figure out that you don't have it if you don't. And if you suspect that you don't, ask some really practical people whether you don't. (laughs) I mean, it can't be emphasized strongly enough. People do make grave mistakes because they're being presumptuous because they don't, they they can't assess things in a, a balanced manner. I don't know if that's an answer or not, but it's an important one. In your heart, though, you see, and this is more, this is another part of it, you know that really the, the only and final solution is to become more in tune with God. And everything else is working toward that. And so you can have both truths operative at the same time. That whatever else you're doing, you're doing it in such a way that it's moving you toward that, rather than imagining that it's an end in itself. You know, such as, of course I need money to live, we're not, we don't have an ashram system, we're not monastics, where we're all going to be taken care of, I need to keep working. Okay, but I will try to work in such a way that it's uplifting to me, that it's in harmony with God, that it's God-reminding. I'll tithe some of the money that I have. I'll use my free time in this way. So we understand that it's necessary still to work, but we're working in such a way that we're still moving toward the ideal that we're trying to accomplish. Instead of thinking, oh, well, my life is for God. I'll just walk out the door and somehow he'll pay the rent. You know, Swami Ramdas could do that. He just literally walked out of the door with nothing but the name of God on his lips. But as as when the musician asked Mozart, "How do you learn to write symphonies?" and Mozart said, "You start with simpler pieces, and then you do this, and then you do that, and then you practice this, then you do that, then you can consider a symphony." And the aspiring musician said to him but you didn't do it that way. You started writing symphonies right away. And Mozart said, but I didn't have to ask anyone how to do it. (laughs) He just knew. So when Swami Ramdas walked out of his home with the name of God on his lips, he didn't have to ask anybody. He just, the spirit moved him and he did it. Okay, let's take a little bit of a break. And then we'll have a very short session afterwards. Okay, question? All right. Um, I feel a little silly asking, but I'm going to ask it anyway. That if one is in the infinite, that means they can be all places at one time, one place at one time. Uh, I'm trying to f- to understand it from myself, which is in the body, and I probably can't get it at all. But I'm having trouble. Well, these are relating. the words. I mean, I'm not talking from experience either. This is book knowledge, believe me. Yeah. But you know, omnipresent means omnipresent one with the infinite would mean you were everywhere 
Yeah, how do you take your mind to those thoughts? I have no idea how to take my mind to those thoughts. Swamiji said on many occasions that Master said that this was his last incarnation, that he would find God, that death would be the final sacrifice. I mean, those are what all those words mean. When he went to the Brighu reader, Brighu said, I usually tell people about their next life, but in your case you're not going to have one. So I'll talk to you about several of your past lives because there's no future life to talk about. Swamiji uh, mentioned to me once that his subconscious and his conscious were exactly the same, which was actually an interesting phrase, and I, I, met, I, I pondered that for a little while. He talked about the fact that, that when, he was in, when he would sleep and have dreams, there was absolutely no difference between who he would be in, in a dream than who he would be when he was wakeful. That doesn't mean that goofy things never happened in his dreams. He had, you know, a number, like everybody, Volkswagen full of muffins, you know, just odd things that don't happen in life. But his own consciousness was always the same. You, and when I really thought about it, that meant there are no vrittis. There's nothing under the surface that... that What's on the surface and what's beneath the surface is identical. There's no... Why is it that when when I dream, things happen that don't happen in... You know, I manifest, uh, uh, you know, sometimes fears or experiences. I don't have, like, big, gigantic things, but sometimes I am somebody in my dreams that I'm not in my normal life. It's not consistent. There's there's a lot of things that will come out when the conscious um, level is removed. But I, I sort of spoke to him about that once. I, I think it's not quite in my book because I, I think I tried to put it in my book and I think he just wouldn't quite let me say it. He wouldn't let me draw the conclusion that I wanted to draw. But he, you know, he says these things when uh, he's had his aura picture taken once in Australia and it was just solid indigo blue. There was nothing. And the woman who took the picture of him said, I, you know, I've never had anyone like this. She actually knelt at his feet when she came out because she said, I've never seen anything like this before. Just, this doesn't happen. You know, and it was just a, an aura camera, but it was still, it was interesting. But he allowed those things to be said. That's, which is why when, you know, I, but I can't go there. I don't have any, insofar as I can go, I, I can't find the edges. And I've never been able to find the edges of his consciousness, not even close. So I put it all together in that way. But yeah, it's quite something to think about. Because we knew him. Now see, this is interesting to me. Swamiji has said on several occasions, and I've said this in here, but I'll repeat it in this context. You all think you would, you would have been better off if you'd known Master in the body. He said, but actually in many ways it's easier for you because you never did. You did not have that confusion. He said that he had to work his way through between the idea that he was in the presence of infinite consciousness and infinite consciousness was having dinner in the next room. And it was just a a very difficult thing to reconcile. Um, But never having seen Master in the body, we can sort of take the the unfettered spirit much more easily. The Swamiji, because he was around for so many years and behaved in such a completely natural manner, but you see, so did Master. We just weren't there to see it. 
Although Swamiji said, especially as he knew him, he was always in a state of awe. But Master himself was just, he said, he describes in the path, Master was the most charming human being I ever knew. He was completely natural. He was a perfect host. He was, he was, uh, when you read Durga Mata's book, especially because Durga lived with him for so many years, you just, you find, you find a person who's a lot like Swami in the way he just moved through life with so comfortably, so kindly, so graciously. And how do you reconcile that with infinity? I don't know. I mean, when Swami was in the body, I just behaved accordingly. That was, that was I just, because I felt it, it was quite natural to me. I never, it was never a pretense. I just felt that way. But what was I feeling? I don't know. I knew it just a little. Interestingly, I think I said this to you all, I found that since Swami... Uh, left his body, when I say the poem Samadhi, it makes more sense to me. I feel like there's some connecting link there. I, in my own life, I didn't, I wasn't able to enjoy Autobiography of a Yogi until after I met Swami. In fact, I never actually read more than a few pages until after I met him, because he was a connector between me and Master and Master's consciousness. I felt when I was saying the poem Samadhi, and it felt really different to me that Swami was connecting you know, me, us, to that reality in a way that I have always enjoyed, but now I could get into it farther. These are my true experiences, whether they're universal experiences, I, I can't say. People have brought to me similar experiences. I mean, and they would bring them to me because I talk openly about my own. But I, it would be presumptuous to say otherwise. But yeah, it... It um, boggles the mind is actually, that's really what that phrase was uh, invented for. It boggles the mind. It's good for the mind. Yeah, it's good for the mind to be boggled. Yeah, it's very nice. What was it that someone said? Oh, this will cause me to lose my mind. Hooray! <laughs> that was the word. <laughs> but really, we don't want to lose our minds, although... You all have heard me say when Kamala Silva um, became, had age-related dementia, and uh, she was Master's close disciple, Kamala, and at the end of her life she uh, had Alzheimer's or whatever you have, and she had no short-term memory, and she really didn't know much about anything. And I was, I, I was horrified. Swamiji, she's a disciple of Master, and she's lost her mind. And Swami looked at me and said, Oh, it's just her mind like that. And all I could say was, her mind, like that. I just didn't, I couldn't grasp it until I met her. And then I saw that all she'd lost was her mind. <laughs> and she didn't have a mind, really. She um, said, uh, tell me your name, but I'll immediately forget it, just like that. And, but she had her whole consciousness was there. Her whole spirit was there. And you could feel that she was totally present. She just didn't have a mind. She couldn't, when my father was at the end of his life, he, he was, he, I don't know if he had Alzheimer's or not, but he, he lost a lot of his mental acuity. I mean, he lost quite a lot of his mental acuity, and he didn't have the same discrimination about things, which in his case allowed him to relax into his heart and become much sweeter than he'd been for a lot of his adult life. It was actually really, he was a joy. But he sat at the dinner table in the place where he was. He lived in uh, with he lived in a place where he, uh, he could be cared for. 
And he ate from the serving plates, and he ate his plate, and then he started eating the flower arrangement. (laughs) 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 Because it was on the table like everything else, and he just couldn't tell the difference between the flower arrangement and the potatoes. And um, He never had a very discriminating palate, I'll just put it that way. And I think with age and a little bit of dementia, you also, you lose your um, senses. Your senses diminish to a large extent. But the people who were taking care of him called me. and I mean, their um, telephone manner was just terrible. They opened the conversation with this line, we've, call, we've called poison control and there's no problem. I said, what? What are you talking about? And then they told me that he'd eaten, you know, a solid amount of the flower arrangement before anybody noticed. <laughs> at which point I just cracked up and started laughing which allowed the person at the other end to laugh, too, because I think they thought it was pretty funny, but they were too freaked out until they talked to me. So they did call poison control and had to confirm that he was going to be okay. (laughs) But, you know, he'd lost his mind. And so he couldn't tell the difference between the flowers and the potatoes. But, like, how important is that? How much does that have to do with your quality as a human being, your ability to love, your capacity to love God, your ability to be joyful? It has zero to do with it. But uh, it's hard to realize that when we're here. But Kamala loved God, and she just continued to love God with her whole heart. She still remembered Master. She loved him completely and just lived in his company. But she thought her stuffed animals were real. She'd always loved animals, and all her stuffed animals, she thought they were living creatures. I mean, who's to say? It's, it's, uh, it was just her mind. That's what my daddy was like. He was just so sweet. Because he couldn't remember, he couldn't do all that fine discrimination anymore. And so he just remembered that everything was wonderful and he loved it all. It was very, very interesting. My uncle, by contrast, his brother, um, held fast to his prejudices really strongly. And he used to like to repeat to me the stories of how he was the only one who really knew what was right, and those people were so incompetent, and he would go through that. He wasn't entirely that way. He also had a sweet side to him, but he really enjoyed that side. And after he recited to me one of those tales for the 10th or 12th time, and he finally finished later, I said, do you like just reliving all the things that make you angry? And he looked at me and he said, yes! which I just thought, okay, you really do, because he, he really, I think actually when he got out of his body, he, he was a very fine man. He just, it, it was, he was a perfect example of, you know, when your mother says to you, if you keep making that face someday, your face is going to get stuck like that. It was like he kept thinking those thoughts, and when his mind began to crack a little bit, unfortunately, he just kept thinking them over and over again. But ooh, he especially... He really stiffened my spiritual spine because I saw what happens if you're not attentive. You know, if you just let those tapes play and think it doesn't matter, then all of a sudden the needle gets stuck and you happen to be in one of those songs and you just have to play it over and over and over again. You know, my father was a little bit annoying in the way he would parse things apart so much, but he was always sweet in his heart. And he, he, he really had a very loving attitude toward everyone. He just felt obligated for some reason to, to Virgo us to death. <laughs> but when he lost the ability to do it, it just, he lost it, thank God. 
Okay, ego identification with the spiritual eye. You know, Kamala was not in her ego. She was so free. She was really in her spiritual eye. She didn't need a mind anymore. Mind was just necessary to present the ego. She just lived here, and she really did. And you just felt it in her presence. She was so sweet. Yeah, she was not rational, or, but she was so here. You know, a lot of saints... Swamiji was a unique character, and actually so was Master in that respect, and that they were so multi-talented and, and so highly developed in so many directions. You know, Master had been William the Conqueror. He'd been the Spanish king before. He had so many uh, abilities that he expressed. And Swamiji, of course, was you know, phenomenal in the s- scope and, and, and span of his talents. Many great saints are not like that at all. They don't write anything. Ananda Moima, I mean, she was brilliant, and her dissertations and her talks are fabulous, but she was not even educated. She signed her name as an ex. And she never did anything except sit there and transform thousands upon thousands of people because it just emanated from her. She was not in her... She was, you know, she wasn't her ego. She, from birth, she was always. I've been reading a very interesting biography of her, and she was just, as a child, she was always happy, and she was always agreeable, and she was always cooperative. And you know, at the beginning, they thought she was a little simple-minded, because there was no ego presence to distinguish itself, or to or to separate itself from the flow of energy around her. She just lived very happily in the flow of energy around her and was perceived then by others as not being quite all there because she wasn't all there. She'd left out a key element, which is to be ego-identified. She just moved according to the divine call, which as a child was in a very simple and harmonious way. And as she grew older, she was the same, but she um, lived as an adult in various ways. But she never did anything of what you would call worldly work, which, of course, she did more than everybody because she changed people's consciousness, which is the only work worth doing. Well, any other questions or thoughts before we call it an evening? Yes, um, take the microphone. It's It's not on, it's only red. Make it green. We need a mind in order to get to a certain point on the spiritual path, though. Oh, a mind is a very helpful thing. It it's, that's the, has the willpower in it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. We should. I'm only saying if the mind is taken away from you, it doesn't necessarily mean, it's not necessarily as tragic as we tend to think it is. Mm-hmm. But no, by all means, you have to cultivate your mind. Your mind is a very, very important tool. Your intellect is what we're saying. Yeah. Because and an intellect is an aspect of consciousness, and we need it. The discriminating intellect... Mon buddhi ahankara chitta. It's like we perceive, we identify, we discriminate. The intelligence has to discriminate. But you're not bound in delusion merely because you discriminate. It's only when your happiness is dependent on things being one way or another that your discrimination gets you in trouble. Otherwise, you just perceive things as they are. Those four elements of consciousness, let's say you see a horse... In, in pure consciousness, you, you can't say what that is. 
and then with a, an aspect of your, with buddhi you can call it a horse. The intellect then says, that's my horse. And then the heart says, oh, I'm so happy because it's my horse. But it's at the point at which your happiness depends on what you're perceiving that your ego comes into it. Because Swamiji was completely detached and impersonal, but he had an extremely clear and discriminating intelligence. But he used it for truth, not to serve the ego. And so we shouldn't seek dementia. <laughs> and we shouldn't think to be, to be stupid is to be spiritual. Sri Yukteswar was really firm on that with Master, because Master was a bit, of a, a bit careless. Had Sri Yukteswar disciplined him strongly to learn to behave, to use his intelligence, to use his mind, to discriminate properly and behave the way he ought to behave. There was no free ride here. And Sri Yogananda himself says, you know, for the sake of the story, I had picked up some bad habits. I thought I didn't have to be that conscious, be that aware, that be, fo- be that focused, that be precise. That was all to say he wasn't really using his mind as much as he should have. And Sri Yukteswar never criticized him spiritually, but he spent all his energy correcting the necessity to become fully focused in the right manner. Does that make sense? I mean, it's a, you know, people use things like, oh, I, you know, I'm out of my mind, that's great. But really on the Kriya path, that's not really how we talk. Okay. That's why when we meditate, we don't have a blank mind. Exactly. Yeah, we meditate, we focus on something. Focus, yeah. All right, great souls. Okay, thank you very much for coming. Pleasure to see you.